This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast and joining us today is Dr. Rita Meyerson, organization change expert, executive coach and adjunct professor. For 25 years, Rita Meyerson has partnered with business executives around the world on matters of organization transformation, culture and leadership development. She has successfully driven numerous large scale global organization change efforts that both met business goals and built high performance cultures. In 2019, Rita earned her doctorate in human and organizational learning from the Executive Leadership Doctoral Program at the George Washington University, where she has researched the role of organization history within the organizational identity dynamics of Sherwin-Williams following its acquisition of Valspar. Rita's organizational change and leadership development work has received numerous awards from the International Association of Business Communicators. Rita was also recognized as a finalist in the case competition of the Hot Mamas Project in association with the Center for Entrepreneurial Excellence. And most recently, Rita was recognized with a PepsiCo HR Excellence Award for her innovative talent and development work for PepsiCo's Global Finance Organization in partnership with PepsiCo's University and the University of Chicago Boots School of Business. Risha, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite an impressive um, introduction. I'm well, it is all true and it's all you. So our topic today is on this wide ranging topic of organizational culture and change. So we were talking beforehand, all the elements that this brings. So if we were to describe what organizational culture is, what are the different factors? How how can we define this at the start? Well, I'm, I'm going to go to my roots as um, a professor and I'm, you know, I teach this at um, Columbia University. And um, if we take Shine, who just recently passed away, who is a giant in our field, if we look at his definition and we, we look at the way that he categorizes it and looks at it and measures it, because it's very difficult to measure culture, right? We see artifacts, if you think of it as a metaphor of an iceberg, we see artifacts at the tip of the iceberg. And then underneath that, um, we have espoused values and beliefs. And these are all of the way that we, in simply terms, how do we get things done around here? So Shine tells us it's the way that it's a definition of how you teach new members how we get things done and that is very difficult to capture to categorize 
the values that we see that an organization espouses on their website, that they talk about in onboarding, that may be part of performance management or leadership development, that is all important. But the way that we get things done and the way that we solve problems, it's it's hard to capture that. So that's how I would describe it. And it's through our interactions, isn't it? So it's how decisions are made, how we handle conflict, if there's a bit of pressure on. And again, as we were talking about beforehand, it's what the culture rewards, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because what the culture rewards, it might have these lovely labels of values on a website, but then it's like, just to get the job done, we'll worry about those values, things later. Tell me a little bit about that. Exactly. So in terms of embedding values into the culture of the organization, you think about, to your point, how do you reward people? How do we get things done around here? And what is rewarded? And that is a great way of thinking about culture. And the values that are espoused are not necessarily aligned with um, what is rewarded. It's great in a high-performance culture. It should be aligned, but it isn't necessarily aligned. In terms of shifting the culture, so we haven't really gotten into the change piece, but that is a lever that you can most definitely use. And this is something that I'm often talking to clients and I'm sure you talk to your own clients because I know you have your own uh, practice as well. And you talked about embedding values and embedding behaviors. And in some companies that will have values written on a wall and some people think, oh, those things on posters and some people, and and I've witnessed it, it's quite effective. It's actually part of their feedback. So when I see this, I'm seeing this value. So again, it's it's very conscious in their language. And that's part of the culture as well, like international culture as well. Each company has their own language. Tell me a little bit more about that. How do you embed culture? That's such a good question. And it's quite complex. I would say that um, if you are looking for behavior change and I teach this in class, but I also work with clients, right? So from a scientific standpoint, how, how do you actually embed culture and how do you, or how do you embed new behaviors to, let's say, um, morph the culture or change the culture or even keep it in the high performance range? So one way is um, how you reward people. So how you um, recognize them and reward them. Another way to see behavior change might be through an emerging leader program, a leadership development program, um, not a program that's for two days, but a program that might last for, let's say, a nine month program. Yeah. So that you're embedding the behavior change through a long period of time. And then those people in that um, leadership development program end up being your, could be your change agents or your culture carriers. Um, How you recognize people. So the whole um, recognition program, not necessarily the total rewards piece, but the recognition piece. What do you highlight in, even in a meeting, what behavior are you as a leader um, recognizing and saying, I'd like to hear more of that. What are you amplifying that you want, you want to hear more of? That is a way that you can 
even at the smallest level and at the team level, you can embed culture. Yeah. And, and sometimes I've witnessed it in, in organizations where at meetings, then if somebody has the courage to speak out, they would say that was a brave, brave thing to do. Thank you for doing that. And then by doing that, that enhanced that psychological safety, then that it's okay to speak out. Whereas in some certain cultures, then it could be a toxic culture. And then now we have a culture of conflict or an underhand way of getting things done. You know, so it's, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not, it's nearly about the, what's the unsaid. Well, you brought up like some really good topics there. So I'm so glad that you brought up psychological safety. I know Amy Edmondson has really brought that to the forefront and it's, it's terrific. Um, and then you brought up the idea of toxic culture. So this um, idea of the systemic way of operating where you can't speak up, where there isn't this idea of inclusivity and diversity of thought and having the courage to, um, let's say, speak up, to make suggestions, to fail forward, um, to courageously fail. So when we think of agile organizations or we think of just the whole agile way of working, that is a great case study in um, trying things and um, creating a more innovative culture. But the idea of speaking up is needs to be, um, if you want to embed that in the culture, it certainly needs to be role modeled by the leaders. Yeah, and it can be that people have, different ideas and understanding what even for it means to be agile. And I, I'm often asked about agility, you know, like my understanding of agility is, is that growth mindset, you know, that Carl Dweck a piece of work. It's about being resilient. It's about learning to adapt to the new reality, you know, and it's going through that change process quite quickly, you know, the, the five stages, uh, 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 Kubler-Ross, you know, all of these different things. What does agility mean to you? So that's my interpretation. Do you have another take on that? Or um, I love the way you describe it. I'm so glad you brought up Carol Dweck and you brought up um, her work on growth mindset. I actually lean into Susan David's work. So her book, yeah. Emotional Agility, and um, all of her work around um, kind of self-awareness, the idea that you have a range of emotions. So this is more at the individual level. Yeah. Um, so I would think about this more in terms of my executive coaching work, having the emotional agility to identify what's happening, take a moment, kind of look at the big picture and then react is a practice, a lifelong practice. Mm. It's not easy when a team has the agility to um, be flexible, to look at options without jumping in to um, what might look like the easy answer. It's up to the leader to facilitate that. It's, it's hard. We know that startups have the ability to do that. So when we saw Elon Musk come in as an example to Twitter, we actually, I did some case studies in my class last semester on this. So it was really fun to watch this real time. But what many 
What many um, were observing, including Scott Galloway and others, was that um, Elon Musk was trying to put in this mindset of we're, we're going to work like a startup with that agile behavior of just working around the clock, et cetera. But this was a bit of a mature organization that had years of success behind it. So to, just to kind of sum up, to capture that agile ability is not easy. You see it with, we can talk about Pfizer and BioNTech. You see it with the big pharma. They've, they've moved into that. They've shifted into this mindset of um, kind of the biotech firms and they, they fund those, but the biotech firms are the ones that are kind of creating the, the groundbreaking drugs. It's not necessarily the behemoth of the, um, large scale organization that's able to shift and move so quickly. All that said, I'll give you one other example. I did spend some time at PepsiCo. It is a, it's an organization that is just known for its high performance culture. When we think about how they shifted during the pandemic, they had a leadership change, right? So that's a culture changer for you. So you went from Ingenui to Ramon Laguerre and from what I've heard, they might not have, to be able to shift as quickly and pivot as quickly as they did, they might not have been able to do that under the leadership of um, Internet. It, might, it's, it took a new leader to be able to do that. However, they have the stability of many, many um, from their leadership team that were crossover. So it's a really interesting question on agile, on the role of the leader, on the role of leadership, and like large scale organizational change and how you shift culture. They're all intertwined and embedded. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because my work when I do organizational design or organizational change, it is always about what are your resources that you have? And you might be designing the perfect organization design on paper, yet do you have the people to deliver? You know, and this is where leadership development programs come in or it might be recruitment or it may be the change of the leader at the top. And I think what people find sometimes with organizational culture is you need to find, do you have the right ingredients to create that culture? And that's why every organization is different. And this is sometimes, would you agree that the assumptions a bit like what Musk was making to say, well, it worked over here, so it should work over here and it's just like throwing in an active ingredient here and hoping for something to happen and then you're like why is it not fizzling you know and then it's a bit like an, a chemistry experiment isn't it where you really have to know the organization said this is how it ticks and this is why you need that social capital or people with the social networks to say actually we can do this there's somebody in an accounting department that has that talent or or whatever isn't it it's I love that example. I think that you bring up such a good point. And then we can just say like culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Yeah. That, that old, that adage, but it's, it's culture is formidable. Mm. And if you do not understand it, you're not going to get very far in your change effort, whether the leader at top, we see it with, it's just, it's, I love that example that you gave. Sometimes I, I've worked with leaders and they walk into, let's call it a toxic workplace. And there's years and years of behaviors that maybe not have been addressed or 
I suppose, personalities, you know, that haven't been developed or managed, let's call it that. And then the leader then goes in thinking, this is what my first 100 days is going to be like. It's usually at aggressive targets and different things like that. Whereas it's a bit like the agility is, is you need to figure out that emotional agility. First is, what is the agility of the organization first? And then let's figure out how to turn the ship based on that where where is the base and you i think that's what's missing isn't it that people go in too quickly to make an impact whereas the long game really isn't thought about it you know that strategic move to say listen what's our reference point here and then let's let's shift by degrees or should we just do a slash and burn like musk was trying to do and let's you know and and, and who knows it could work out i you know i'm i'm not a fortune teller but it doesn't seem to be um from my perspective. I I think you're right. There's so many examples that come to mind. As a leader that is um, coming in to an organization that needs to, let's say, turn it around, Mm. getting the lay of the land and building your guiding coalition, if we talk about Cotter, so important. And also really tapping into your middle managers, tapping into your frontline leaders that are going to be able to shift the culture and drive it forward is really important. I would assume that a leader that is um, a new leader, I, I just did a case study on Lululemon, although it's, it, it's, it's old, but it was at the time when they went from founder led to going public to then kind of sustaining. And they brought in one leader to go from founder led to like a professional CEO. And he, his name was Bob Mears. He was the former CEO of um, Reebok. He, he took them public, but that was all that he was able to do. And then they brought in a veteran actually from Starbucks, Christine Day, who was really able to capture the culture, understand the culture, which was missing from mirrors and um, bring them to kind of where they are. I mean, look how successful they are. Howard Schultz really talks to Christine Day's um, partnership during his, you know, his time at Starbucks. So, and you can also look at Starbucks, for example, they brought in one CEO, then they had to bring Howard Schultz back. Now they brought in a veteran from PepsiCo. Um, and let's see how it goes. It's not, not easy. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple and then they brought him back and turned, you know, brought, certainly brought them into the 21st century. Yeah, the culture and the history is incredibly important to catapulting the organization forward. And and that's where, you know, there's, there's some of these cultural landmines that you keep walking across if you go too quickly and go, oh, and then before you know it, this is, you know, in our work as, as executive coaches, then it's like people trying to go, how do I, how do I recover from here? And the damage is done. The damage could be long lasting, you know, especially when we talk about trust, which is another, another factor of, of high performance teams. And you mentioned the work of Cotter then. So for listeners here listening in, why is Cotter important when it comes to cultural change? Well, John Cotter is really the father of um, bringing change management into practice, similar to how Amy Edmondson has brought, um, for more current times, brought um, psychological safety into practice. And his eight steps on organizational change 
have um, been quite helpful to leaders in the last 30, 40 years. So the guided coalition is one component of that eight-step process. It's back to Lewin, who is the, was the theory behind that, which is um, unfreeze, make the change freeze. So that's yeah. part of what organization, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's what's really important then as well is, is when you mentioned Lewin there, that's what a lot of people... I suppose get wrong is that don't allow that refreeze to happen. That do it, like there's too much change going on, and I know that happened in one of our um public bodies where it there was there was change fatigue going on. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's exactly what I was thinking. Change fatigue. People have change fatigue with the pandemic, and then the hybrid work, and the work at home, and then return to work complex and now with the economy global economy softening yeah and this then brings me to return to work or return to the office should i say rto as it's known it sounds like rta road traffic accidents but you know um so the the rto return to work is laden then with opportunities for uh cultural misalignment if we call it that and values to be misunderstood. So, for example, we're talking about a generational thing where certain people don't want to go back to the office, you know, and then where does teaming comes in? You know, where does, how do you develop, I suppose, younger, uh, more junior talent there and how do you create that talent pipeline? I think, as you were saying before, we're, we're two years or three years away from some sort of normalizing when it comes to organization culture, you know, and especially if there's change coming up, especially if there's a, a global recession coming, you know, what advice would you give to our listeners? If I'm a leader listening in now and there's so much flux at the moment, I'm thinking of onboarding so many new people because there's so many, um, I suppose, talent attrition and it's a very competitive market for now. And, and then, it, it seems to be all the good ones that are going and we're left behind with the underperformers from, you know, what I've heard. You know, how do we how do we manage that cultural dynamic? So the concept I like, so two concepts I like to kind of refer to. One is VUCA. So I'm sure you're familiar with that. The volatile, uncertain, complex. Um, and ambiguous. Yeah. And which is not new. And that was, that's been brought to the forefront in, I would say in 2010, it became kind of popular. So we're really, we're living that, we're living the 21st century certainly has proven that that's the case. You also talked about being agile. So the idea of being flexible and the idea that um, you're going to, this idea that you're practicing and which I bring from more of a mindfulness um just mindset that you're going to try something with your team. If it doesn't work, you'll tr you, you try something else. You really need to be reflective on and, and take lessons learned and do some type of um, kind of reflective exercise. So in the military, they'll call it a hot wash in the U S military or um, an after action review. But the idea is if you can learn from your failures, Learn from things that did not work out. 
you're always going to get better. And that is a, a, a more uplifting and um, positive way, I think, that you can build momentum and continue moving forward because we just don't know what's going to happen. And it's been very clear on what the enablers are for success, isn't it? So when I talk to clients, then it's like, okay, is everybody clear on what your espoused values are? The mission and the vision, let's take that for granted. And are you doing the basics right? Like doing your performance reviews, doing them well, having those um, effective feedback conversations and performance management conversations. And then it's about upskilling your people to be resilient or leadership development programs or workshops for teams. It's these are the things, the elements, the enablers, aren't they? That will allow an organization to be agile and thrive rather than, oh, let's let's have a, a summer barbecue or, you know, or something yes. like that, you know. Yes, yes, yes. I, I also think embedding this into your operating rhythm Mm. is is really important. So that is how do you communicate? How are you getting things done? Decision making? How are you solving problems? And those things might need tweaks. So that's important as well. What's your the, the overall governance, accountability, all of those things. So I like the capture for that being an operating rhythm. Um, I think that's something else to look at. So just overall organizational communication. Now you talk about bringing people together in um, joyful, like so a, a barbecue. That could, so with this, let's go back to the whole hybrid work or the return to office. And what, I, what I've what i really, been, what I've seen from many of the experts, Sadal um, Neasley, who is a, Neely, excuse me, is a, um, professor at Harvard and business school and written a few books on this and is really in the forefront of like this whole hybrid work movement and work revolution. Understanding if you are having people in the office, what are you doing with them during that time? Everyone's sitting in the office on conference calls, Zooms all day long and every sitting in their little box, that's not helpful. So the collaboration, when does that occur? And I think you need to be intentional really intentional about that and that makes the whole hybrid work piece harder so to your point on there's nothing takes the place of the interaction of being in person like you and I are having a great co collaborative conversation here and it's terrific however if we were in person certain elements might even be the sparks might even be stronger Mm. So being very mindful about how you bring your team together in those moments is important. So it's bringing a focus or intentionality to to say, here's what good would look like here. Here's an outcome I'd like from this meeting on top of what we plan to do. It's like, how do we increase trust or how do we have more flexible working? It's it's adding extra layers of depth in each interaction. That's why it's so complex, isn't it? Organization culture and change. It's people want to do the, the surface level stuff to say, listen, let's have the posters on the wall and we give people badges of the values. But how do we be intentional with that every day? And it reminds me then you talk about organizational culture. Remember that 
Burberry were trying to do a turnaround and the CEO realized quite quickly, you know, I, I need to have sharp, short and sharp communications with people, a very visible front, but town halls and different things were, were too much um, because people were time poor, didn't have the resources to take people away from their desks. So the CEO started doing these uh, weekly little video snippets. Here we're at now. Here's what we're going to celebrate. And then the brand turned around from something that looked haggard and out of touch to something really on trend and on point. Um, and I think that, and that was 12, 13 years ago. And I think that was so innovative at the time to say, actually, what are the resources we have at the moment? And what's the job that needs to be done? And how can we be fresh in a way that we approach that? And I think when we are intentional then and have clarity on the on the goal, then it's easy to come up with the approach. I think we don't often sit back and it's a bit like yourself. What's the landscape and what do we need to get to the next step slowly rather than quickly, isn't it? Yes, but also that's a quick win. So let's go back to Cotter for a second. What yeah. are some of the quick wins that can be done? And that is an amazing quick win that ended up becoming part of their culture. It sounds like it became mm. embedded into the way that they got things done. So, and the CEO knew from what you're describing that the larger, more formal communication forums were not working, but these small um, bursts, if you will, were really helpful and attribute really contributed to their turnaround. And that's where you met, mentioned that operating rhythm. I really like that, where that became the rhythm then of the week to say, okay, what's today's video going to be about? And now how are we aligned about the strategy? How are we making progress? Here's what our learnings were. So a quick and short, snappy uh, burst of communication. And again, when when we talk about, I suppose, newcomers then and onboarding and you know socialization then this this brings to mind the importance of organizations organizational citizenship what it means to actually be a solid performer right not even like a high performer because i think i think people are so fatigued from work i think you just need to be a consistent performer say listen i'm not looking for a five out of five in my rating three or four is, is good at the moment if I'm close to burnout, you know. Um and and it's having that normalized as a we re reward solid performers. Is there something around that that's maybe missing at the moment from both the employee and employer? Well, what you said really what made me think about in the high performing organizations that I've seen and worked with over the years and did my, has done research with, if you're new to a role, right? So if you move from one role to the next, typically you, you're getting a three. There's no way that you're the highest level. And that's the idea that you're learning and you're growing. And I think if you give that, um, if that's that's part of um, success with your, with your new hires, that it's a learning opportunity, but it, not only the new hires, but also the someone moving to a new role, even a CEO, right? Because they're reporting to the board. Yeah. 
So the idea that you're hit solid performance in your first year is in your first year in that role is that's a good metric to have. And it is about clarity of expectations well and managing expectations. And sometimes when, when I've gone into organizations as an employee, you know, people are going to say, listen, there's going to be certain periods or peak periods, you know, and you need to manage your energies to say, listen, we need a recovery period after this, you know, and I, and I think there's a lot to that, especially if you're going into a startup or it's going to the next stage. And I might talk to you about startups later on, you know, is there certain a piece about managing expectations and clarity expectations for newcomers? A hundred percent. So they, so as a manager of a, of a new hire or someone moving to a new role, it is so helpful to have a first 90 day plan. Who do they need to meet in order to, who do they need to meet? What do they need to do in order to be successful? You as the manager want that person to be successful. You don't look good if you bring on a new hire and they're they're not, not successful. It's not it's not good all around. So um, ensuring that they have a solid onboarding plan and that doesn't mean going to an orientation for one day or two days. It's a good ninety days to even six months. And what are those short term? Let's go back to like wins that you're going to help that person achieve. And what are some of the longer term wins? And being very clear about that. And you as the manager, and you know, you're you're moving between coach and leader often. You're your player coach. Um, you're moving between that role. How are you going to to ensure their success? That's that's very important. And speaking of startups, I I work with large organizations and some startups and and some of them are getting really successful, so they're mushrooming in size. And then they start thinking about this whole question about organization culture. And some people do it as a as a paper exercise that we do it every five years. And they get so absorbed in it. And then they go, oh, gosh, we have to do it again. That is the case, isn't it? Like it, It's like an organism, like it changes and evolves over time. So what advice would you give to people who are listening in to say, oh, like, how do I how do I avoid being consumed by this? Or actually, is it just we should have one person just focusing in the, on as many aspects of this in the workplace? That's a lot of questions to unpack. Yeah, isn't there? Because this, these are often the conversations I go like, I go, well, I start going to the depth and they're like, oh, well, what can we do right? right now and I'm like you can do this and you can do this but you need to start considering other factors maybe a couple of months time and like oh, I'm not sure if we have the resources for that this is a it's a bit of a it's a bit of an investment that needs to happen isn't it for it to pay off startups is it's it's its own it, it that's its own behemoth right so and depending upon where they are with what stage of the startup and what industry they're in so like yeah. tech is completely different than biotech yeah right so there's a lot, it seems from my experience, there's a lot more, There, there's more stability in what I've seen in biotech. I'm seeing more seasoned leaders. They, it, there's more cash. It, it's completely different than like a 
Uber startup, right? But when you, one thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting, should one person be focused on culture? And I would argue, no. Culture needs to be embedded in the everyday practices of organizational members. So having one person on point for that, I, I don't I don't see it that way. I see that leaders need to own this. It needs to be part of their, how you reward them. And um, having even, even from HR programs, HR, HR might define, in the center of excellence, might define a performance management program. They may define um, a reward and recognition program. They, they own comp and benefits. They might lead and design um, a leadership development program. But these, to embed them and to actually shift the culture needs to be owned by the business the business leaders. So you need to embed it into the day-to-day job of your people. You have just answered a lot of the questions that I would be answering to clients. And this is where I would go back into leadership development programs or facilitation says everybody clear on their role or what do we embed systemically as part of a performance management program? You know, are we rewarding people for that organizational teaming piece rather than just the task of what they achieve it's how we achieve exactly and the, the high performing organizations that i have seen throughout my career have two components to success in the organization and how they um how they promote people they hit their numbers they get their job done and they grow next generation of leaders and you can't, you are not moving up. And, you know, this is in large organization. You're not in the Fortune 500. You're not moving up unless you do both of those things. Mm. So it's what you do and how you do it. So if I was listening in and I'm curious about my own organization leadership, then what are the key questions that I need to be reflecting on on a regular basis? That's such a good question. Um, well, I think you got to, you have to segment out your organization, right? So you're going to, you have your newcomers, you have your, you have, right. So you have your newcomers, then you have your first time managers. How are they transitioning from individual contributor to leading? Um, and even in that space, you also have folks that, um, maybe not have solid line direct reports, but they have to get things done. So how do they influence the organization? How do they influence people to get things done, even though they don't have a solid line to them? And and the peer peer relationships are very important. So that's one group. Then you have your mid-career group. And how are you going to, uh, the question for that group is, how are you identifying and strengthening your bench for your next generation leaders, right? So that's like that mid-career level. And then at this at the most senior level, when you get to that level, how are you inducting people into becoming a senior leader? What it, how are you differentiating it? Do you need to differentiate by um, diversity components or not? It depends on what the organization needs. And how are you preparing 
those senior leaders to then become like the, your most highest leaders. So I'd see it in three components. Okay, that is a very, very good advice. So I'm going to going to finish up with this one. Um, and I'm a, I have a personal, uh, I suppose, um, aff- affiliation to this approach is the at the approach of co-creation. So when when change is happening, the easiest way to get buy-in is present the challenge and co-create solutions or models around that, and then you have natural change agents as well is this is just something because i like this approach or is there theory then to support this a hundred percent agree with you i love the word co-create so but john potter does talk he does talk about that and we know it in the research and all of our change efforts that you need buy-in what's in it for me how are you getting people aligned all those pieces the co-creation as a consultant I am only going to be successful if my client is successful. So co-creating the solution is going to get success. Not me saying, this is what needs to happen. Every um, organization is unique. The culture is unique. The way that you get things done is unique. And yes, there are best practices, but co-creating, I love that word, is uh, or that, that process is going to help whether it's with one leader, it's a leadership team, it's you pull together this guiding coalition. So maybe you have a group that's responsible for human capital across the organization and it's a rotating group, but that group's co-creating. That's how you're getting buy-in. And it is about stakeholder analysis, stakeholder management. Here's the thing though. It's slow because it's democratic nearly in nature. It's not a bit like what poor old Elon Musk was trying to do was, was listen, here's how we're going to do it and I know best. Uh, and, and then you're hemorrhaging. Oh, no, that didn't work. He had complete turnover of his entire executive team. It might be by design, but yeah, that, that did not work. Yeah, and, 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 and look at all that knowledge, you know, and culture leaving, you know, that social fabric has now been ripped uh, apart. And then how do you create a culture based on, well, it, it looks to me like it's very leadership because uh, is, is, is the leadership is lacking, shall I say, because people are now now misaligned in what the company was. At least if you have people there a long time, at least you have, a, they mightn't be completely aligned, but they'll have a similar viewpoint on, you know, fake news or, or you know, um, how do we, how do we uh, operate around here? So it is that, isn't it? That, that, that I've heard companies that have had 80% turnover in the organizations, which how do you survive after that? Right. Then you have an entirely probably new work and the history, right? You've lost your history. You've lost, it, it becomes a new organ. It morphs into a new organization. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it like, I, I'm often fascinated by, uh, leaders who just don't know how to stem the flow and sometimes it's a leadership aspect isn't it or it's figuring out what are the drivers behind um people leaving in their droves and it's it, sometimes it's back to lack of flexibility or lack of uh, strategic alignment or no strategic alignment or or whatever it is and this brings me to the point of of culture and and, and conflict culture 
you know, it, it seems to me that, and I'm only going to do this from an Irish or European context, that... The, oh, I love that. Yeah, there seems to be not a culture of conflict where we do it in a healthy way. It's It, it seems to be lots of grandstanding or... People like from a conflict point of view often say, listen, well, how do you have different conversations or how do you negotiate or how do you influence, especially if you're in a startup, you know, should should be plenty of of that conflict culture going on. It's actually here's what we do and uh, here's how we, we do conflict. We do it in a healthy way. We do it in a way that's transparent, like, you know, that uh, transaction analysis where we have two adults debating rather than going into leaving the room and, you know, can't believe that person said that. And then we're doing all this after talk, you know, so that, that, that culture in conflict in an organization, I'm just quite curious about that because that could be quite corrosive to the success of an organization. Another really interesting question that I think is a lot to unpack there. And I know that's your deep expertise. Um, so, Oftentimes with my executive coaching clients, I encourage them, if you really being good at conflict and understanding how to navigate high conflict, just conflict in general, that is a superpower and mm -hmm. it is not easy. Um, but if you can get good at that, that that's incredibly helpful because the idea, the, if we bring in this idea of diversity, um, equity, and inclusion, right? So we want to have diverse thought. We know that um, organizations have higher performance, return on investment, et cetera, when there's a diversity of thought. But how do you actually facilitate that from happening? So it comes down to like, how do you how do you navigate conflict? How do you solve problems in a productive way and not to what you what I think what you talked about earlier is like you get up and everyone walks out and then there's lots of like back talking, you know, behind the scenes talking. And that's that's incredibly damaging to not be able to address the conflict head on, but it takes a lot of courage and you need a culture that supports that. And that has to come from the top. And it really like at the board level has to support that at the senior executive team. And I know we keep repeating this, but this is all part of leadership development programs, isn't it? It's about emotional agility comes from that self-awareness. What are your drivers for behavior, your own inner narratives, inner script, whatever it is, what's what's driving your behaviors, your emotions. Then we talk about, well, actually, how do we equip people with the tools to be strategic, get on the balcony, uh, if you want to borrow from adaptive leadership. Um, and again, there's so many different facets to this. Is is like when people, when I talk to my clients, then they go, oh, you're just trying to tell me a leadership development program. I go, well, actually, they're one of the key enablers. You know, and yes. I, you know, I just happen to be within this business, you know, and it's very reassuring um, that our approach is, I suppose, you know, the the best there is out there, isn't it, for the moment until AI takes over. Let's not go there, though. <laughs> AI is not leading a leadership development program. They might design elements of it, but... Um... The organizational history and hearing stories. We talk about 
another way to transmit culture is through stories. Mm. You lose all your, if you lose your, um, you, you talked about turnover. When you lose your tenured employees, you lose the stories. And, and, and then they can be inspirational stories as well to say, you know, often you see when you talk about startups and when they're the embryonic stage before they go into that mature stage, it's like here with the stories where this is how we were innovative or this is what, what Steve Jobs did before. He was just too early with the, the Edison before he came out with the Pan Pilot or, you know, whatever the, the yes. iPad or, or the iPhone. You know, there's loads of different stories that are there to say, listen, well, here's how we do things. Yes. Um, and again, be careful what, what stories you tell. Oh, yes. Yeah. So let's let's hopefully the, 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 the stories of uh, of something that's healthy, because sometimes we have stories where it's about long hours and different things like that. And the wrong value is transmitted, isn't it? That's a really good point, because when you think of startups there, we talked about reprieve earlier and giving employees an opportunity for rest. And um, when you think of startups and it, they sensationalize the long hours mm. and working in the garage and whatnot. And it, you might be in the garage for a long time. Yeah. Who wants that? <laughs> it's yeah. some people thrive founders, founder led organizations. Sometimes that, that their sweet spot from like a leader standpoint is they're great at the fact, you know, getting it from zero, Peter Thiel's book, zero to one. They're really good in that, in that um, phase. And then the more um, mature, the professional CEO, that that's not really their thing. This idea of having an operating rhythm, the idea of having performance management, the idea of training people, onboarding people, any of those things. That's different, different, different skill set. So I know I said one more question, but this is the finally last one. So we've talked about we talked about leadership there. What what has inspired you to you know what leaders inspired you or you know to be where you're at today? You know who inspires you? That's such a good question. It's evolved over time for sure. Um, the world has dramatically changed from when I started my career in 1996. And even if I go back to um, being in college in the early 90s to where we are in 2023, the world has dramatically changed. I was lucky enough to see Marshall Goldsmith. We talked about this earlier um, in my early days of Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. And um, he was talking about his practice. And this is before he became who he is today. And I said, I want to be like him. I want to be him. Um, and that's certainly aspirational. I have seen the professors that I've worked really closely with um, throughout my academic career and the work that they do. And I've seen um, others that kind of have one foot in academia, this adjunct professor model, and then having the practice from, it's hard in today's day to zero in on one particular leader that is absolutely um, aspirational. There's so many, 
I think Brene Brown has really done a tremendous job of bringing in the research and making it um, comprehensible and um, actionable. So when we talk about courage and authenticity and vulnerability, I think that's really interesting. Um, Susan David's done a great job. Adam Grant has done a really good job. Tom Peters is just, I mean, he's iconic, right? Yeah. And um, Indra Nui's leadership, Larry Fink's leadership. Um, I think Anderson Accenture has over the years has really done, when I look at the 26 year trajectory, they have done a phenomenal job. They, they remain on top. Um, a lot of inspiration from the U.S. military as well. If you're going to study leadership, I think that that's really important to, um, and I'm really proud that Columbia has a partnership with West Point. I think that's really important. Um, there's a lot of good leaders to look to as examples. The humility and the ability to be a lifelong learner is so important. I think so. I think so. So we're coming to the end of our podcast. Now, if our listeners were to get in contact with, with you, Rita, how might they do so? Thank you so much for asking that. And I really enjoyed our conversation so much today. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with me, um, they can reach me on my website at ritamyerson.com and you can send me a note there. Uh, my email address also is Rita at RitaMyerson.com. You can also read about me on LinkedIn or on Columbia's website. So thank you so much for having me. Rita, so good. Thank you so much for coming on to the Workplace Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.